Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and it's the genealogy of Jesus, and uh, John and I are going to read this together. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abjib, Abjah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eludud, Eludud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Flat Earth Society uh, became extinct um, around the sort of 14th, 15th century. Um, and people at that time genuinely thought that the world uh, was flat. And if you sailed, you would fall off it and, and go into sort of the black hole, as it were. And I was uh, listening recently um, to, to one of the um, writers, broadcasters, David Mitchell's written a book called Dishonesty about the confusion between facts and opinions, um, uh, which is, is quite current in today's society. And uh, apparently the emergence of a new flat earth society has been created and there are followers. I don't know if there's any followers here. Um, and the distortion of facts. Um, and Luke, um, sorry, Matthew has given to us in his gospel uh, a history about our Lord Jesus. Um, and I want us to think about why we are Christians here today. And if you're not a Christian, if you're a person who has held back on saying that Jesus Christ is my Lord 
and king. I just want you to enjoy and be challenged by this story. Ten reasons uh, why I'm not a Christian. And it's compared with ten reasons why I never wash. First of all, I was made to wash as a child. People who wash are hypocrites. They reckon they're cleaner than other people. There are so many different kinds of soap, I could never decide which one was right. I used to wash, but it got boring, so I stopped. I still wash on special occasions like Christmas and Easter. None of my friends wash. I'm still young. When I'm older and I've got a bit dirtier, I might start washing. I really don't have time. Ninthly, the bathroom's never warm enough. We've got a lovely warm church here today. Ten, and finally, people who make soap are only after your money. Daft, isn't it? We all need to wash, we all know it, there's no argument, and we all need a personal friendship with Jesus too. And the need may not be quite as so obvious, but it's all the same. Jesus can do something soap and water can never do. Now, hands up. Those who like doing genealogies, your family history, your roots, hands up. Okay, thank you very much. Hands up if you are bored by people who talk about their family genealogies. Thank you, Christine. Your honesty is superb. And so I suspect when you come to this part of the biblical canon of Scripture that is the genealogy, you might be going a bit like this and wondering, why on earth are we looking at this piece of scripture? And I just want to share with you some of the facts, not opinions, facts about the historicity of Jesus and what Matthew is sharing with us here. So firstly, the history of Jesus and Christianity. So Matthew begins in verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the first thing that Matthew is teaching us here is, this is real history. This is about real people who lived in human history. This is about real people under a nation called Israel, and Christian history is real. And some of us uh, might take that for granted about the historicity of Jesus, but we now live in a world, as I mentioned just a moment ago, where facts and opinions kind of blur, and there are substantial facts about the historicity of all the record of these people that Matthew talks about. There was a Scottish university professor, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey, who lived in the latter half of the 1800s and the early 1900s. 
He was a critic of the Bible, and especially the book of Acts of the Apostles. And he agreed with the scholars of his age uh, that the Bible was a book of myths, like fairy tales. And Ramsey's studies took him to what is Turkey, now Turkey, East Asia, to demonstrate what Luke supposedly described in the book of Acts could never have happened. But you know what? The more William Ramsey studied, the more he followed the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, the way of the Acts describes, the more Ramsey was absolutely amazed by the correlation in the Scriptures. He later wrote, there are four kinds of history that are written. There is historical romance. There is secondly legend. Thirdly, there is second-rate history. And then there is first-rate history. And his conclusion after his years of first-hand study in East Asia was that the Bible was a first-rate historical document. You know, anyone who wants to take up and confront the scriptures often faces a moment in their lives about the truth of the Bible. An American lawyer called Frank Morrison wanted to prove using all his legal training that the scriptures were not true. And he was looking at the resurrection accounts of Jesus And Frank Morrison came to the conclusion at the end of his case studies that the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place and he became a Christian. And he wrote a book about it called Who Moved the Stone? So what this tells us is that history and archaeology do not disprove the Bible. They confirm it. And what we discover in Matthew chapter 1 is the historical reality of Christ, of his life and his ministry. Christianity is not a myth. It may be unpopular in the Western world in the 21st century. And I want to encourage you, if you have friends or family members or neighbours or even enemies who don't follow Jesus. We've got an Alpha course starting with an introduction evening on the 9th of January at 8 o'clock in the church lounge. And there are going to be some invites put out next Sunday. I want to encourage you to pray about who you might invite because it's a place where you can study freely, unconditionally, without pressure to look at these facts. So I want to encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus today, to pay attention to the Bible, what it says about him. There are a lot of people in our world who claim all sorts of things, but Jesus is historical fact. Read it for yourself. Come to it afresh with an open mind. Let God speak to you through it. Secondly, the prophecies about Jesus. What is significant about verse 1? The son of David, the son of Abraham. It refers to the promises which were made in the Old Testament to these individuals. 
and were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When God first called Abraham in Genesis 12, he told him to leave his family home and go to the land that he was sending him to and that he would make him into a great nation. Now, some of you have left your home, your, your land of your birth, and, that's a, and coming to the United Kingdom, and that can be a very unnerving and daunting experience, leaving what you're familiar with and going to a new land. Just think about Abraham, who was 80 years of age, and God tells him he's going to be a great nation, and he has no offspring. So there's some remarkable things that God is doing in this man's life. And he told, God told him, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And later in Genesis 17, God told him that through his seed, one of his descendants would provide an everlasting covenant that would save multitudes of people and make God their God forever. And then in 1 Chronicles 17, when King David wanted to build a temple to worship God, the Lord told him he was not the one to build the temple, it would be one of his offspring. In verse 11 of 1 Chronicles 17, I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be one of your sons to establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house, and I will establish his throne forever. So God made promises to Abraham and David that someone was going to come, and one of their offspring would fulfill the promises made to them to bless the earth, to save and bring salvation, and establish God's new relationship called a covenant. And so in Matthew chapter 1, the Bible is saying something very powerful about who Jesus was. That he was born from the line of Abraham and David. And his teaching, what Matthew is saying is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecies. On his birth, he fulfilled 53 prophecies in one day. Now, you might be clever than me. You cannot determine where you are born. <laughs> and the prophecy was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that's where he was born. Jesus fulfilled thousands of years in advance. These prophecies were given, and he fulfilled them. Micah 5, written 700 years before the time of Christ, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Such a clear prophecy we have. Psalm 22, the uncanny detail of how a Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced while he was surrounded by his enemies how his garments will be gambled for, how he will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus totally fulfilled this scripture written 1,000 years before that place of crucifixion. And then there's Isaiah 53, the portrayal 
of the vicarious death of Jesus for our sins on a cross. Where he comes from, recognizing that this is the Messiah who dies for us, written 700 years before he was born. And the Apostle Paul said to King Agrippa in Acts 27, verse 26, These things did not happen in a corner. Jesus didn't just pop up and say, Here I am, I'm the Christ, follow me. It was the perfect timing in history, fulfilling all the predictions of Scripture, whether it's in Genesis, Psalms, or the Prophets. And what we read here is the son of David, the son of Abraham, came at the first Christmas. So the genealogy is telling you and me about who Jesus really is and what he came to do. So we have the historicity. We have the prophets, the prophecies. Thirdly, we've got the background of Jesus. I think it's really important to state here that the actual characters in this genealogy, if you look down, if you've got a Bible in front of you, there are some pretty unsavory characters in this scripture. I don't know if you've done a family genealogy, whether there's a, a convicted criminal in your family history. I'd love to hear about it for sermon fodder for the future. Um, but we've got some interesting family genealogy. In verse 3, we have uh, Tamar, who played a harlot with her father-in-law. In verse 5, we have Rahab, who was a harlot. And verse 6, we've got Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. And, and then we've got Solomon in verse 7, with the lists of his many wives and whose heart turned away from God. I think what this teaches us is that your family's background doesn't disqualify you from God working in your life and my life. Jesus had adulterers and murderers in his family background, yet it didn't keep him from being the Messiah of God. And you may have dark family history, but that won't disqualify you from being used by God either. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is about the sons of Korah, and they're mentioned several times in the Psalms. But in Numbers chapter 16, it tells us about their forefather, Korah, he led a rebellion against Moses' authority. And God opened up the earth, so it swallowed up Korah and the rebels. And you can read about this in Numbers 26, where it tells us in verse 10 that Korah's children were spared. This is something quite revolutionary at that time, because if the clan head was guilty, all the clan were guilty. So not only were the sons of Korah spared their forefathers' fate, they actually went on to become Levites, priests. In 1 Chronicles 9, 19, Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Abisaph, the son of Korah and his relatives 
of his father's house, the Korites, were over the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, and their fathers had been over the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. And that actually is the context to Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And that was written by the sons of Korah. God used them and they excelled and flourished. And some of us may feel as though we are doomed to failure because of our lineage, our family background, due to sin our parents committed, or because of something unsavory that's in our background. And what we learn is Jesus breaks the chains. Whatever our family background was and is, God can use us in a great way, in a fantastic way. The other thing that we learn about this family background is that the personal sin of this, the people in the genealogy didn't disqualify them either from being used of God. You may have failed God. You may have sinned. You may wondering, can God still use me? And the passage reminds us that he can, that he can deal with the sin in our life. He is gracious to sinners, and God is gracious to us this morning. He's given his grace to us. That's what the cross is all about and what John was demonstrating in the children's talk. The atonement is the at one bringing God and humanity together. Rahab and Tamar and Judah and David and Bathsheba and Solomon and all the others were involved in immorality. Others were murderers, others were liars and deceivers. But the Bible teaches us that's what it's all about, forgiveness for these things. If we repent and seek forgiveness, ask God to help us to change it, you will find forgiveness, cleansing. In 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous and will forgive us all our sins. Jesus didn't come to give us a history lesson about genealogy. He came to save real people like you and me in real history. If you have never done it, why don't you turn and follow Jesus, the, the Christ, and make him your Lord and Saviour? This passage, as we come to a conclusion, reminds us of the uh, uh, providence of God. Again and again in this genealogy, we see God's purposes go counter to the expectations of men and women. Abraham is chosen out of all the people on the earth, and he has no children. What a daft thing to do. But God chooses him. Isaac, the child of God's provision, was chosen to continue the line and not Ishmael, the child of man's scheming. Jacob, not the firstborn as Esau was, continues that line. Judah was not the firstborn, Reuben was. 
or the well-known Joseph is included in the line of the Messiah. Tamar's twin sons, Perez and Zerah, are both listed in this genealogy, but only Perez is part of the line of Jesus, showing God's sovereign purposes in his life. David himself was the youngest of all the clan, and he's chosen. Five women are included in this genealogy. This is incredible, because the Pharisees' daily prayer, and forgive me for saying this, was thank God that they were neither a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And here is God revealing the importance of women. Five women contained. Four were probably Gentiles, Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, and Bathsheba. At least three were guilty of sexual immorality. I heard of a man who spent 500 pounds on his family's genealogy. When he found out about it, he spent another £2,500 trying to suppress it. The inclusion of these women shows that the gospel of grace provided through the descendants of Jesus would be for all genders, all races, all backgrounds, whether rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. Jesus can save. And what we learn is the overarching promises of God, that in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. The promise was expanded onto Abraham, told by God that he would be the father of many nations. And the promise was repeated. The promise was extended to King David. He was told that he was one of the descendants of a king who would sit on the throne. And the promise was expanded through the prophet Isaiah. This is the faith of Christ, the Judeo-Christian faith. Do not walk away from it. Do not smite it lightly. It is the faith of God who created the planetary systems. And this is the message of the genealogy of Matthew. God has kept his word. I will bless you. He has sent the long-promised Messiah, who is the seed of woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. The true king has come. So what do we do? I want to finish with this story. It's a true story. In September 1871, an elderly lady who was 82 years young, was ushered into her heavenly reward. But earlier in her life, in 1835, she was so frustrated because she was disabled and could not uh, have mobility. It left her feeling useless and questioning her very salvation. As a young woman, Charlotte Elliot was not sure of her relationship to Christ, not sure whether she was saved. Even though a Swiss evangelist said, are you at peace with God? It would not leave her mind that question. And when she saw the evangelist a few weeks later, she mentioned 
that she could not shake his question. But she protested, what could possibly, what could she possibly bring to God? She gladly accepted Christ. Some 12 years later, in 1835, she was crippled with illness, constant fatigue. She felt saddened by her inability to serve in the local church. And remembering her conversion, she took out a pen and paper and wrote a poem to encourage others who felt perhaps they had nothing to give. And the hymn went this, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thou blood was shed for me, that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Her poem was published, and she was inundated with requests for it. She was gladdened to discover later that some, later some of her copies were sold to raise money for the very cause she was unable to help. After her death, thousands of letters were found in her home, written by people whose lives had been transformed by the words of that hymn, Just As I Am. Her song has been translated into hundreds of languages, published in more than 1,600 hymn books, and has reached billions around the world and continues to bring people to Christ today. Sixty years later from the date of her death, in 1931, a 31-year-old man riding in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle in England finally came to the end of an internal struggle about whether Christ was indeed the Son of God. He finally knew in his soul that indeed Jesus was who he was and realised that God calls us just as we are. C.S. Lewis stepped out of the sidecar. He knew he was a new man, saved by grace. Ninety-nine years after Charlotte Elliot penned her words, and three years after Lewis's conversion, a 16-year-old dairy farmer listened intently as he heard the message of salvation preached at a revival service in Charlotte, North Carolina, where he sang, Just As I Am. A young Billy Graham went forward to accept Christ. Twenty years later, Billy Graham had become a successful evangelist and was invited to speak at Cambridge University. His nervousness over the event nearly led him to cancel it, but he was introduced to a kind man called C.S. Lewis, who encouraged him to disregard the critics who had spoken out against him and to continue with the revival. Billy Graham went on to speak at an overflow crowd of 2,000 people every night. And when he returned to England in 1989, he addressed crowds of 80,000 people in Wembley Stadium. As always, he closed the event with the same song that brought him to Christ, Just As I Am. Friends, never think you have nothing to bring to Jesus. Never think that your life 
is without purpose or direction, or nothing is too small for God, because God used Charlotte Elliot to pen a hymn that has changed the face of planet Earth because of C.S. Lewis and the impact he's had on modern movie-making and English literature, and Billy Graham, who has reached more people in the Western world than any other evangelist. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, on this third day in the season of Advent, we declare that you are the Saviour of the world. You are the Messiah who was prophesied. And you are more real today, more alive, more resurrected than we can ever understand or fathom in our tiny minds. And today we say, just as I am, we bow before you. We pray today would be a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit, a fresh conviction on this third Sunday in Advent to walk with joy and hope, to have our eyes cast to the Son of God. Lord, may we be those people who are filled with light and whatever we offer to you, however small or insignificant, we pray that you will multiply blessings through it, blessings through our family line, that we would sow love and peace and grace, blessings in our workplaces, that this church would sow blessings of love and joy, of healing and restoration. Lord, will we be at a cusp in our nation a cusp of turning back to you and discovering the risen Lord and Saviour, born as son of David. We kneel humbly in our hearts, recognising you are the great Messiah. We honour and worship you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.